our catechesis for this Reformation Day. How does God use the Ten Commandments in our lives and in the lives of others in the world? First, God uses it as a curb for the good of his creation. God uses the law to limit or prevent coarse outbursts of sin, thereby helping us to keep order in the world. Luther tells us that God also uses the law as a mirror. God uses the law to reveal and to condemn our sin. And thirdly, Luther tells us that God's law is used as a guide. God uses the law to guide and direct our thoughts, our words, and our deeds as Christians in God-pleasing ways. Luther also notes that there's a very reason why the second use of the law is so important, the mirror. Because it shows that we all have sinned and cannot keep God's commandments. And so it makes known our need for the gospel of Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law. Luther ends his catechesis by reminding us that the law always accuses. Here again the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And conversely, the gospel message springs forth in John chapter 8. Jesus answering people who were believers but didn't understand what he was trying to tell him. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. If in no other manner we look to for commonality in the different peoples of the world, we find it right here in these words. For everyone sins. I don't care what color you are, how old you are, what nationality, what race, what ethnicity. If you're a human being in this world, you're a sinner. And we all have that in common. Not exactly something we want to post on the board that we're proud of either, is it? How thoroughly corrupt and sin-ridden is a slave to sin? In the verses just before Paul's letter to the church at Rome that Derek spoke of earlier, Paul outlines the universality of sin, the total depravity of the world. In the human condition. And how does he do it? He uses quotes from Old Testament references. He could use many of them if he wanted to. But he goes back to the Old Testament, giving us an idea how long we've had this commonality of sin. He uses words from Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Psalm 14, Psalm 36, Psalm 53, Psalm 140. 
from Jeremiah 5, from Isaiah 59, and from Genesis 20, and from the first chapter of Proverbs. He puts it all together, and this is what he tells you and me. So we don't have to look it up. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, snakes, is under their lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In truth, total corruption and estrangement from God and devolving of humankind into the slavery of sin was initiated with the uncontrollable disposition to defy God and His will in the act that we all know of as original sin, Adam and Eve. That original sin, that one sin made necessary all the subsequent chapters and books and verses of the Holy Scripture, wherein God promises to deliver us from all that sin. And where he records for us and for our edification and comfort and joy what he has done, what he did before, and what he continues to do to break down the barriers that exclude us from a life with him. Since then, humankind has been under the law which always accuses, as Luther reminds us, unable by works of the law to be justified in God's sight. Why? Because it is since through the law that we come to have knowledge of sin, right? Paul says that in chapter 7. I would not have known what sin was unless I had the law. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, God, though, God, though, had the answer for that. He planned for this condition of unrighteousness on the part of our feeble human condition, manifesting himself and his own righteousness apart from the law. Through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, to be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul would write in another letter, this one to the church at Ephesus, what would become the foundational doctrine of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The only work that earns your salvation is the salvific work of Christ on the cross for your sins. Christ's righteousness covers you, my dear sinner. He alone is the sacrifice for sin. And we receive the mercy and the grace and the salvation promised by God in Christ Jesus by what? By faith 
alone. That word alone in Latin is sola. People have been holding on to, clinging to this misguided notion that their good works merit somehow righteousness that can effectively secure or at least assist in Christ's atoning sacrifice and thus, therefore ensure them a place in heaven. For centuries, people have sought to alter what God has ordained to be the truth. Tried to add their own views to things, shape their own doctrines, build their own Bibles, and, pre and prepare and promote their own path to this heavenly realm. That heavenly realm, the final destination. God clearly tells us how you can access that. And he tells that through Paul's inspired words. It is available to all who believe sola gracia. By grace alone. Sola fide. By faith alone. Solo Christos. In Christ Jesus alone. Sola. Alone. No add-ons. No extra bonus points. And certainly no merit on your part or mine. That truth, which is brought into our church every Sunday, comes to us from God's inerrant source, sola scriptura. Scripture alone. But it is illuminated even more on a day like today. Today marks the 504th year since Martin Luther, a very devout Catholic, made a prayerful request to the church hierarchy posting on the door, the wooden door of his church, the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, a 95-point thesis to stop the practices he had come to understand were not what God actually was saying. They were contrary to God's will, contrary to God's word, and so therefore they were not truth. Luther's list included his concerns about the practice of making people have to pay to have their sins forgiven. They called them indulgences. But on October 31, 1517, with one big hammer, nail, he hammered onto that church door, which was also the city's bulletin board, for crying out loud, everything went to the church door. Luther had unknowingly began what would become a fundamental reforming of the theological doctrines of the day, which had been in place for centuries. Luther unknowingly lifted the shade off the gospel that had been hidden for so long. God's world and God's will was beginning to shine again. But this was just the tip of the theological iceberg because what the church has been practicing was contrary to the gospel. So much so that the gospel wasn't even getting out to the people. In fact, it is ironic that in a world that has just gotten through the dark ages, it was hardly a period of enlightenment. For most Catholics in Luther's time, it was still the dark ages when it came to their spiritual life. To their beliefs. The majority of those filling the pews had no, little or no formal education. Literacy was not even common. This was a mostly agricultural and farming communities in Europe at that time, in Germany. 
No education. What Catholics did learn about God and sin and faith and hell and Satan and church came from the priest, who you did not question. Even if they could read, the Bible wasn't even available to the masses in the language of their heart. So Luther's sermons, most of which are in the small and large catechism, those, those sermons fit and were instructional to parents. How? Because their children would be at home working the farm. So they would take Luther's instruction, go home and teach their children the truth. Over a period of centuries, the practices and the rituals of the Catholic Church had increasingly shed more light on the priesthood and the papal authority, the importance of works and penance, which ended up having the effect of terrorizing believers, bringing them to great despair. Luther would describe it as terrified consciences and fearful hearts. And not unlike the predecessors of history, the church had become this giant corporation. Great power and authority. We might call them middle-aged money changers, wielding the word of God as though it were something to be feared and not be loved. Truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Not free to be slaves of the gospel at that time, because there was no gospel to be found. All that changed with the reformation. The light of the gospel of forgiveness once again was showing God's people the path away from the onerous burden of the law and to being justified by God's grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone. In this very desperate time, the enslaved we're now being set free. So if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So it was with Jesus' messages of hope and forgiveness hundreds of years before. Love and mercy in the parables that he spoke, in the sermons he preached, in the miracles and healings he performed. Also in the direct confrontation with those who were opposing the word and who were enslaving God's people. Hundreds of years and generations apart, the message is that God's word wins out in the end. 504 years have passed since the word became known to a generation of people in Europe who had been kept in the dark. Today in America, we have the freedoms to worship God. Today in America, not in so many other parts of the world. Today the word of America is made, the word of God is made available in the languages of people's hearts. That's ongoing in our Lutheran church today as they translate the Bible into the original Iraqi people. What a wonderful thing that they're doing. Today in America, God's word is rightly preached, taught, confessed, and obeyed. Oh, time out. Let's talk about that last one. Today in America, we still harbor many 
of the shadows of darkness of Jesus' time. Even from the time of the Reformation, inequalities in our world still exist. Bigotry still rears its ugly head with disturbing regularity. Radical ideologies still threaten the tenets of Christian faith to this day. Cultural and political norms are still under attack constantly, even as the gospel of Jesus Christ is under attack. God's word is routinely suppressed, rejected, ignored, and sometimes tried to be canceled by an increasingly dangerous progressive movement that champions tolerance and entitlement that erases at will historical truths, that suppresses and darkens our world as it seeks to cancel cultures that embrace some other belief, any other belief. Times change. People change. And as long as there is sin in this world, Christians are going to face challenges of their faith. They're going to face temptations of sin. They're going to face trials that they must overcome. Throughout all the ages, though, one thing remains constant. God's word, his eternal, inerrant word does not change. The younger generation today does not see or feel the winds of change as you and I do, do they? Today to them, today is simply the norm of life. They believe what they hear in the world today. And they believe what the world wants them to see. That is their norm. But you and I know that's not the true norm. Those of us who have lived and are now living through times that threaten our way of life, our freedoms, our faith, our family, and the future of our nation, we bear some responsibility to teach and educate our children for future generations. That that's not the true norm, is it? Every one of you sitting here today I know has a story to tell that you can teach your children. I have a story. I'm going to share that with you today. Maybe give you some guidance on how you can share. I was born in a little town called Beardstown on the Illinois River, the deepest part of the Illinois River. 1947, I lived there, tiny little town until... Uh, fourth grade, and then I moved to the big city, Peoria, <laughs> not Arizona, Peoria, Illinois. Peoria, Illinois is a very old, old city, one of the oldest cities in all of Illinois. It was founded in 1680 by a couple of French uh, explorers, one of whose name was LaSalle and one of them was Cavalier. They founded it because they were coming in their, on their canoes down at the river, Peoria River, Front. It was at that time, it was just kind of the river area along that beautiful, pure Illinois River. And they, they started it there. So in, the, in my day, when I got there, 
I saw Peoria and the river down below. All the, there were, they still had the, the big companies down there, breweries everywhere, Caterpillar Tractor Company, other steel operations along the river. And the town had been built up over the centuries, had been built up right all the way downtown on, down at the river level. And workers in that level were predominant, and people who lived in that area were predominantly black in my time frame in the 60s. The town, though, would move from that lower level up a bluff to the upper level of the, as it would grow. There was no place to grow anymore at the bottom. So they started growing at the top, and up at the top were hospitals and schools and, and, and moderately wealthy and high-income people lived on the bluff while the poor people lived at the bottom. This was a predominantly white area, and a rich area, except for my parents. <clears throat> but I mean, they had a high school, they called it Richwoods High School. That's to give you an idea. But we, we were right on the cusp. We, our home was a, a two-story rented home, $75 a month. And we lived right across the street from a high school, which was culturally integrated. There were blacks and whites. There were not Hispanics there at the time, though. I didn't sense any animosity between those living below and those living above. I delivered papers to those down below. We went down and got great barbecue from down, at the, down below the bluff. I didn't sense bigotry. I didn't sense racism. It was just the norm. Then I got Uncle Sam invited me to join the Air Force. And so I came down to San Antonio in 66 and... Uh, I, you know, I, I, I worked in the Air Force, and if you're in the, anybody in the military, you work with all kinds of races and ethnicities. You don't have any problem. There's no sense of that bigotry there. And then in 1969, while I was, I came back from overseas, I, I met the most beautiful woman in the world. I'm not forced to say that either. Uh, and, I, and I married her in 1970. I didn't understand that I was marrying a Mexican-American. San Antonio's full of Mexicans. I didn't understand that, although there's a little bit of whisper about that. It wasn't until my wife and I <clears throat> came back to Peoria that bigotry slapped us in the face. But it didn't slap us in the face as whites against blacks or blacks against whites. It was whites against Hispanics all of a sudden and blacks against Hispanics. And the things that they said to her and us and the way we were treated hurt. So we came back in 1974, we came back down to San Antonio to live. All kinds of Hispanics down here, we fit in very well. I went uh, and I joined, uh, I went back in the Air Force and in 1980, I got a job with HEB. And then along the way, H-E-B, this, what a wonderful company, they, but they understood that this racism, this bigotry has to be stopped. We need to respect each other's diversity. And so they, did, they did, created these diversity management courses, and then they picked on people who had some experience. So for two or three years, I went to store to store teaching diversity. A white guy teaching diversity. I taught it from experience, which is how you must teach your children. 
from experience. And in faith and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Jesus reminds his disciples and us, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So how do you let your light shine before others? You teach your children and the younger generation. What does Proverbs tell us? Proverbs 22. Train a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. You feed your loved ones. You nourish them in the word. You strengthen them to walk in the light of the word that they have in them. You live and teach them how to live in the light of Jesus, setting examples for them to be a light for others. Today, by God's grace, I'm still teaching. But not from the norm. I'm teaching from a norm that I thought once, mistakenly, everybody understood. Everybody believed. Everybody had been taught that God created us all equal. That we are his workmanship. We are his children. Size, shape, height, weight, color of hair, color of skin, rich, poor, healthy, ill, smart, challenged, able, disabled, gender, one gender or another, at the river's edge or up on the bluff. God loves you equally. Like God always says, I will be your God and you will be my people. We face a ton of challenges in the world today. And if the current time in which we live with new norms being thrown out there and accepted by some and scorned by others, if that's any indication of what lies ahead for our children, it's going to, they are going to face even greater challenges in the future. And that's where you and I, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and professed Christians come into play. It is up to us to reach out to speak out through prayer and in thought, word, and deed. Telling them the norm that is above all earthly norms that now exist. And anything imperfect and sinful world might want to champion in the future. Teach the word, sola scriptura, in season and out of season. Teach what God has given us in His unchanging norm. His perfect word, His unconditional love, His grace and His mercy only through His Son, Sola. Alone are we saved. Luther understood that what was being taught was destroying the light of God's word, the good news of the gospel of forgiveness by God's grace. 500 years ago, one big nail on the church door and the hammer of God was the start of reforming and restoring the presence of God and his word of truth to the world. Each of you sitting here today has a role to play in serving God. Here, 
The restoring presence of God and his word of truth is still spoken. It's still taught. It's still preached. And it is still upholded, upheld as the one true norm that will not be darkened, that will not be extinguished by any of the evils of this world. For it is by God's word alone, sola scriptura, and his grace alone, sola gracia, by faith alone, sola fide, that we are saved by Christ alone, sola Christos. What a blessed comfort then it is to know that we are never sola, are we? We are never alone when we are in Christ. And we Lutherans have a term for that too. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God. Alone. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that passes our human understanding keep you, your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.